Well, good morning. Uh, thank you, sir. We have uh, a couple of programming notes here. First off, um, it says in your bulletin that for those who are interested in being baptized, the classes will begin in June. That is a lie. <clears throat> uh, July 22nd will be the baptism class. So if you have not been baptized and you're interested in being baptized, please see me. Uh, we have four people already signed up, and uh, the baptism itself will be held on Sunday, the 26th of August. Uh, you'll see on your uh, on your bulletin that uh, July 8th is the Insomnia Support Group. Uh, I wrote this dissertation, and some people have expressed interest in uh, talking about it, so we'll do that after church on the 8th. If you would like a copy of that, you're welcome to ask me for one. I'll give it to you. If you don't want one, I'm not offended if you don't ask me for one. Uh, any questions? <laughs> it's your tithe dollars at work, man. Yeah. <clears throat> but Office Depot is, it should be sending us a fruit basket this year. Uh, so, and, and then coming up, this is, this is our last, uh, sermon in this first section of Romans. Uh, as you know, we're going to be taking four years to go through the book of Romans. And in sections, this is the end of chapter four, which is the first, the first part, one through four. In September, we will resume going through chapters 5 through 8, uh, but beginning July 15th, we will have a series on the Song of Songs, which uh, many of you know is the one book of the Bible that is all about sex, all of it, the whole thing. That's what it's about. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, I guess that's not relevant for me because I'm not married. And some of you may be thinking, well, I guess that's not relevant for me because I'm married. <laughs> I think I am going to say this. In fact, I know I'm going to say this. I have been here as pastor for nine years. Trust me. Give me a shot. You may not think this is a good idea. You may not think you'll want to be here for this. You may think there will be other things that will be worth doing on Sunday. Uh, at the conclusion, you may come up and say, that was dumb to trust you. But give me a shot on this one. All right? All right. In the meantime, next few weeks, we are going to be reading a few classic sermons. Now, the point here is not uh, to make you think I would have my pay docked. For a few weeks. Uh, on July 8th, we will have the anniversary of the day in which Jonathan Edwards, the greatest theologian that America ever produced, delivered his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I've been waiting for July 8th to fall on a Sunday. Now it finally did. Uh, and uh, leading up to that, on the 1st, that being Canada Day, we're going to hear a sermon by uh, the Baptist preacher Henry Aline of Nova Scotia. And then next week, uh, Joe Miller will be delivering a sermon by John Witherspoon, the only clergyman to have signed the Declaration of Independence. Dave Dennis reminded me this week. And uh, like Jonathan Edwards, uh, one-time president of Princeton. Uh, so uh, we look forward to delving back into our history over the next few weeks as we prepare for Song of Songs. Pray for me, please. So... As Mike Gorman talked about last week, there's a classic error that is made in reading Paul's letters, specifically the book of Romans, 
which is that people think that it's all about them. When in fact, who's it about? God. It's about God. It's about God. It's about God. Paul, I think, got up in the morning not thinking, how can I find a gracious God? But he got up in the morning thinking, what is the gracious God that I have found doing today? And what is my role in that? Paul went to bed at night, I think, not wondering with fear if he might be acceptable to this gracious God But what kept him up at night, I think, was wondering how he made what God had done in the past make sense in light of what he had just recently done in and through Jesus Christ. And I think in chapter 4 of Romans, what we found was this story about Abraham. And as Mike said last week, it's not really a about Abraham. It's about what God did with Abraham and how Abraham's story helps us make sense of what God did. You may know in Paul's story of his life, he has this dramatic conversion experience, and then it's some seven years later that we find him showing up in Jerusalem to talk to the people who are the leaders of the church at the time. Or that seven years, there's this vague reference in one of his letters that Paul went to Arabia. And I imagine Paul sitting there in the desert with his scrolls of the not only Torah, which he probably had memorized anyway, but the prophets, the writings, trying as a faithful Jew, a well-educated rabbi, to understand how it was that this one true God of the universe could also have been revealed in and through this person, Jesus Christ, that this Messiah who was supposed to be liberating God's people, was supposed to deliver them from slavery, had himself been put to death by the people from whom he expected to be liberated. Paul's writing comes out of his wrestling with the Scriptures, with what God was doing in history. And so when Paul asks in the beginning of chapter 4, what then shall we say that Abraham, the forefather of us Jews, discovered about this question of God's faithfulness, the way he justifies people, what he's doing with Jews, what he's doing with Gentiles. What should we say that Abraham discovered? That's not just a rhetorical question for Paul. That's a question you get the sense that Paul chewed on for months, for years. What Abraham discovered, Paul concludes, is that he believed God And that that was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham discovered that it is faith. It is believing in God 
It is trusting God. It is placing your confidence in God. It is going along with a God who is against all sense of what is right and what is true and what works. The God who gives life to the dead. The God who calls into being those things that are not. That is the God in whom Abraham believed. That is the God who credited this faith to Abraham as righteousness. That is the God who has demonstrated his faithfulness through the whole history of his dealings with his people, Paul said. Even though it doesn't look like it, even though the nation is under the thumb of a foreign oppressor, even though this man who said he was Messiah died, that is not the end of the story. Abraham didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and he gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is the kind of faith that Abraham had, Paul says. This is the kind of faith that we are called to as well. Because we are his descendants. Those of us who are his descendants, not according to the flesh, those who are not literal, physical descendants of Abraham, i.e., people who are ethnically Jewish. No, those of us who are his descendants, Paul says, through faith, who have the same kind of faith that Abraham had, who trust in the same God that Abraham trusted in, who are persuaded, fully persuaded, that he has the power to do what he has promised. The words it was credited to him, Paul says, were not written For him alone. But they were also written for us. To whom God will also credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. We are part of a story that goes back to Abraham at least. We are part of a story that God is working out in and through his people. But we are also, we should note, part of a story in which Christ is indispensable. This God in whom we believed raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. The historical fact of what theologians call the Christ event is not something that can be ignored, not something that can be laid aside. It has to be dealt with. We cannot make sense of what God is doing and has been doing without factoring that in. We cannot make sense of our connection to Abraham apart from Christ. Because we have to believe in that God who raised, who did raise Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. 
This Jesus who was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Without his death, we are still in our sins. Without his resurrection, we are not justified. We are not made right. We are not rectified. The mess is still a mess. So we're part of a story in which Christ is indispensable. And we're part of a story that includes what God has been doing since. One of the reasons that we're reading these old sermons is that they're part of the story of what God is working out here in North America. The colonial era was important in the political history of our nation, but it was also important in the religious history of the Christian people here. One of the reasons we read the creed together when we take communion is we're reminding ourselves that we're part of a community of followers of Christ that stretches back centuries, that stretches across the globe. We are in this place, we are in this time where God has put us, but we are part of a much bigger story. If all we do when we look at the Bible is say, well, what does this say to me today? Then we are missing the bigger story of what God is doing. And we are failing to recognize that it's about God. Stupid. However, we are still part of that story. We as a community, we as individuals are not just cogs in a machine. We're not just data points. We are ourselves individually beloved of God. One of the reasons that we have to keep talking about how we are part of this big story, about how the book of Romans is about God, is that we're part of a culture that has fallen over too far, usually, on the side of making religion all about us. I love the way that Joe introduced the hymn that we sang in the garden, because it brings the most, I think, the, the, the most positive spin on that hymn that you can possibly have because it does talk about the intimacy of the relationship that we have with God. We'll talk about this in Song of Songs. One way of reading Song of Songs is to see it as talking about the intimate relationship that God has with believers. But at the same time, quite often, in the garden is an example of the Jesus is my boyfriend genre of worship music, which you get plenty of these days. Prom songs for Jesus. There's a hilarious South Park episode that's offensive to many in which Eric Cartman takes these love songs and instead of baby, he puts in Jesus and he becomes a Christian music star. The fact is, no, we don't come to the garden alone. We come to the garden in community with 
the eternal church, transhistorical, transgenerational. But there's also a sense in which, yes, we are individually beloved of God. You may have heard people say that even if we were the only one, Christ would have died for us, which makes me think it would have been really hard for any of us individually to crucify a grown man. But there's a sense in which that's true too. And we have to hold these things in tension. We have to hold in tension the reality of this big story that God is working out and the fact that we are important parts of it in and of ourselves, that whatever role we play may not seem significant. None, none of us probably will have books written about us or will be mentioned or, frankly, even remembered after our grandchildren die. But while we're here, while we're part of what God is working out, we are important because we are His, because we are people that He's made. We can't lose track of that either. And so our challenge as we go through this is going to be to, to keep those two in tension. The fifth through eighth chapter of Romans are indeed about us. This will probably feel a little more familiar because it does talk about us and our sin and our redemption and how we know the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. But I think if we try to just deal with that without understanding the bigger picture that we get in Romans 1 through 4, then we have a cut flower that will look pretty for a while but ultimately die. What God is doing in us is rooted in this bigger story that he is working out. And so when we take communion, it is not just about our connection to the worldwide historical body of Christ, but it is about us as individual beloved sinners receiving the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ broken and shed for us. It's both and. So will you stand with me as fellow sinners justified Join me in the words of the creed that express not just what the body of Christ has known and has experienced, but what each of us individually can say, can testify to. So today, instead of saying we believe, let's make the pronouns personal. Let's go with the first person. I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory 
to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. I invite you to come forward, uh, receive the elements, and bring them back to your